1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, good morning again to all of you. We're back in 1 Peter again, and uh, it's been a long break. You ready, Jan? Jan's ready. You're ready. All right. Yeah, we, uh, we've been working through 1 Peter for a long time now. In fact, this is, as I keep notes in my computer, this is the 26th message uh, as we've been working through this little book. And I'll tell you, I had this plan. Uh, I came up with a plan before I took a break to finish this in an expedient manner. And I had it outlined how I was going to do it. And then I got back to it this week and the outline fell apart. And, and so here we are and we're going to get through two verses today, uh, really just two verses, and then we'll return to the rest next week. But I feel like I need to take a moment here, just a, a, a few moments to sort of recap how we got to where we are, because I know uh, two things have happened. One, some of you have forgotten. I just know that's the nature of it. You've forgotten what First Peter is all about and how we got to this point. And then secondly, uh, over the summer, I know some of you have just joined us here at Burnt Woods, and so you weren't with us during the original series. So let me just give you a uh, just real quick uh, high view of the book of First Peter and remind you that he's writing primarily to a bunch of uh, Christians, Christians in the first century, who are beginning to experience suffering. They're beginning to experience persecution for their faith. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter calls them by uh, the, the name, they are exiles. They are the elect exiles of God. And he uses that language, surely with, with intention, to try to draw them uh, to that imagery of being people who are living in a foreign land amongst people who don't share your worldview, don't share your culture, don't share your religion. And so these people are exiles, and they're beginning to experience persecution. It's just the beginning of the persecution that the Christians would experience under the Roman Empire, which would, uh, which would become much, much worse than it does here in 1 Peter. And this is just sort of the beginning. And these early Christians were experiencing things like uh, just uh, being ostracized because of their faith in Jesus. They found themselves uh, not getting invited over to dinner, you know, so to speak. They just were on the outskirts. They were losing friends. They, some of them were losing their jobs or their ability to make a living. Some of them, uh, their families were divided. But there was much worse on the horizon. There was a suffering that was coming. And so we have to remember that Peter's writing to them that throughout this whole book, remember this, this has helped me to kind of remember how to approach the book, that there's this sort of scent of persecution in the air when we read First Peter. It's happening all around them. That's the purpose of the book. And then, uh, well, well, not the purpose of the book. That's the context of the book. The purpose of the book then is to offer us hope in that suffering. Remember, if you go back to chapter one real quick, just go to verse three. And I think that this is sort of a, uh, an overarching purpose statement in the book of First Peter, what it's all about. Chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this idea of hope versus suffering. And so in chapter 1, all the way through verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 10, uh, Peter really just encouraged them, you are the people of God. You belong to God. You're his people. And so he talks about how even if you're suffering in this life, God has something better laid up for you in heaven. That's all of that first section. 1-1, one, one, 
through 2.10, and then in 2.11, he sort of switches gears, and he starts to talk not now about who we are, but about how we should live as God's people while we're living as exiles. This is important. Remember, we, we went through this, and I think this had so much practical application for us, where Peter gives us the key verse. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. This is where the transition takes place. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, there's the word again, exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your souls. He says, listen, control yourselves, live a pure life. And then here is the major statement that informs everything that comes after it now. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he's saying as God's people living as exiles amongst other people who don't share the same beliefs as you do, don't share your worldview, live in such a way that they can see the good that God is doing in your life. They can see Christ in you and eventually that will influence them and perhaps they too will come to Christ. Your life matters. The pattern of your life. And he goes on in that next section, chapter 2, verse 12 through chapter 3, verse 12, really just to tell us Give us some examples of living out a pure life. He talks about authority, the issues of authority, uh, authority in, in, uh, to the government, submitting to the government, submitting to our employers, submitting in the workplace, uh, submission in marriage, husbands living sacrificially for the wives in marriage. And then he turns his attention to God, keeping his eyes on our pattern of life. Listen to chapter uh, 3, verse 12. Look at it with me real quick. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. God's watching. Amen? Don't ever forget that. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so that brings us up to where we are today. Chapter 3, verse 13. Now Peter's going to turn his attention specifically to the issue and the subject of suffering. So let's look at it together. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to read through verse 17. Peter says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We're going to get to this next week, but listen to these words. Uh, Christian brothers and sisters who use social media. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Amen. That's God's word. And this morning we're going to examine this subject of, of suffering. And we really do. This is a, a subject that, that is uh, applicable to all of us because we live in a world that's full of suffering. You agree with that? It's been all over the front pages lately. Visions of suffering. Uh, we think of Haiti, the situation in Haiti and what's going on there. And it just seems like if ever there was a nation that just couldn't quite get ahead, it'd be Haiti. Right? How many of you knew that not long before this 
uh, earthquake, this most recent earthquake struck, you may have caught in the news that their president had been assassinated. And their president was assassinated. The, the country itself really is run by uh, groups of gangs, and it's just a dangerous, horrible place. And then another earthquake comes and, and, and disrupts them, and the suffering is just immense. The suffering is unbelievable. Of course, we've all watched uh, the situation in Afghanistan unfold, and, and in spite of what we hear in the uh, media reports and the, uh, the, the media that we see, if you follow the story closely and you're listening to the voices that are on the ground, you know that there's immense suffering there, particularly among Christians who've been left behind and who are there in Afghanistan. So there's suffering. We're just seeing these images of suffering, and Peter's going to address the subject of suffering as we walk through the remainder of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4. This is going to be the dominant subject, the subject of suffering. It's going to be a recurring theme. In fact, I want to encourage you to do something. If you're a Bible marker, if you're a person who marks up your Bible, I want you to look at verse 14 again, and I want you to underline these words where he says right in the middle or at the beginning of the verse, even if you should suffer. Even if you should suffer. Suffering, let me say this and, and we'll return to this in a couple weeks. Suffering is a reality for Christians. We don't get a pass because we follow Jesus. In fact, the biblical uh, uh, truth is that if we follow Jesus, it increases the likelihood of our suffering. Even if you should suffer. So it's important that we understand that that Peter's addressing suffering, but I want to spend my time today just sort of as a reintroduction, getting our feet wet in First Peter, talking about the kind of suffering that he's dealing with here, because it's not all suffering that Peter deals with. It's a specific type of suffering, a specific uh, type of suffering that's different or, or suffering for a different reason than, than some suffering that we experience. I'm going to try to put this into three categories for you, three broad categories for you when we speak of suffering. You ready? No PowerPoint today. Let's do it the old-fashioned way, baby. You're going to have to write it down. She never, she hates it when I don't give a PowerPoint up there, but, uh, but no PowerPoint today. I'm going to give you three different types of suffering that we all experience and try to discover what is Peter really getting at here. So here's the, the first thing. I'm going to call this, because I couldn't figure out any better way to say it, general suffering just general suffering. And this is how I would describe all suffering that's a result of the fall of Adam and Eve. You realize that, that, that when God created the world, when God created the earth, that suffering was not present in the creation. It wasn't there at the beginning. It wasn't part of the original creation. In fact, we know that God describes in Genesis chapter 1, the creation each at the end of each day, He tells us that the creation was what? What, what was it? It was good. It was good. And then we get to Genesis 1, 31. I love this statement. It says, And some people have said that God waited until after the creation of of the woman to say this, but I, I, maybe that's true. But it says that God saw everything He had made, and behold, it was very good. It wasn't just good. Everything was very good. So in the beginning, we know that suffering was not part of God's creation. It wasn't part of the creative order, but it wouldn't take long for suffering to become a reality, would it? So by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, 
We have Adam and Eve in the garden, having been given all things and only one restriction. The devil enters into the garden, tempts them to violate God's command not to eat of the tree of good and evil, knowledge of good and evil. And they do exactly what God has commanded them not to. And now when God curses them in chapter three and curses the creation, we see the entrance of suffering into the creation. Genesis 3, 16, God says to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Ladies, you know that childbearing brings suffering. I know that it's very quickly that suffering diminishes, but nonetheless, here we have the entrance of physical suffering. Genesis 3, 17, the next verse, God turns to Adam and says, Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. In other words, Adam, your life's getting ready to get real difficult. Everything that you do is, is going to be difficult. You know, the Bible says that the days of man are, 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 are few, they're short, and they're full of trouble. Adam received this curse. His life becomes difficult. He's going to become acquainted with suffering. All Listen to what I'm about to say to you. This is so important as we sort of develop a theology of suffering. All suffering comes as a result of the fall. All of it. All suffering comes as a result of the curse God pronounced on sin. Sin causes suffering. When God created the world, it was good. Sin entered the world. And the entire creation, not just people, but the entire creation is cursed and marred by the effects of sin. We live and we suffer and live in a world that's full of suffering because of sin. Y'all with me on that? I mean, that this is... Practical, though, you think about like death entered the world because of the fall, right? Death, the suffering that we know when we lose a loved one. Sickness entered the world because of the fall. We get sick. We struggle with cancer. We struggle with uh, coronavirus, all the different things. There's sickness in the world because we live in a fallen creation. We just, this past week, witnessed a historic storm moving up through the Gulf and all the way up through the East Coast and, and leaving wreckage and damage behind it. Natural disasters happen and people die in those instances because of the fall. It affects everything. But it's not what Peter's talking about when he addresses suffering. It's not the kind of suffering, this general kind of suffering. We know that we live in a world that's full of suffering, but there's another category that I want to give you, which is what I'm going to call sinful suffering. Sinful suffering. And we say that all suffering is a result of sin. I mean that in big picture. But I also would say that that it's possible that you find yourself and I find myself suffering as a result of my actual sin. You know what I mean? Y'all, with me sinful suffering. I don't even think I need to spend much time on this point. You know, and I know, that when, when we sin, there are consequences in this life for, for our sin. I mean, there's always consequences. It causes 
suffering. Sin brings suffering with it, and, and we cause ourselves to suffer because of the consequences of our sin. Even Peter sort of alludes to it in chapter 2, verse 20, if you just sort of peek back over there for a second, where he says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten, you endure? So he said, why would it be of any benefit to you, or why would you boast in the fact that you've done evil and you've been beaten for it? You know what he's really saying there? If you've done evil and been beaten for it, you got exactly what you deserved. You got the, the consequences in this life for the thing that you've done, and you got what you deserved. If you uh, go out tonight, you can think of a thousand examples for this, but let me just give you a big one. If you went out tonight, uh, this evening, and you went and, and you drank and drank and drank enough alcohol until you were completely drunk, completely incapacitated, and then you got behind the wheel of your car... And then you drove down Route 32 and you crossed the line or something and you hit somebody and you, you killed somebody. You would have to deal with the consequence of breaking the law, of sinning against the laws of the government, the things that you've done, doing things immoral. And you would have to live with those consequences, right? The sinful suffering, the guilt of taking a life, the, the, the legal consequences of having to go to jail, losing your job, doing all of those things, that's Sinful suffering and its consequences. That's not the kind of suffering Peter's speaking to here, specifically. The kind of suffering that he's speaking of here is in verse 14, which we can call righteous suffering. Righteous suffering. Look at verse 13 and 14 again, where he says, he begins by saying, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And some have interpreted that to mean people probably won't harm you if you just do good. It's a strange thing. I, linguistically and grammatically, there's some argument about these verses, but I think that that's not the correct interpretation. I think that what he's doing is he's building from chapter 3 verse 12, where it says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In other words, if God is for you, who can be against you? So when he says, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing good? I think he's appealing to God's protection in your life, God's ultimate protection in your life. And then he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And again, this isn't uh, even if, like maybe it could happen. It's rare, but it could happen. I think, actually, I'm with the group of people that says that the if, the if in this verse doesn't mean it, it might happen, but that it will happen at some point in your life you're going to suffer for righteousness' sake. I think that's in keeping with the rest of the Bible, by the way. What Jesus said about it, it's in keeping with what Paul said about it. For all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So suffering for righteousness' sake is a way of saying, really, that we're just suffering because of our faith in Jesus. We're suffering as a result of our faith in Jesus. There's always have been those since the very beginning who've hated the followers of Jesus. We see it happen immediately in the book of Acts when the church is born. We can remember all sorts of instances, but we remember that the disciples were beaten. Do you remember this? 
They were beaten and threatened. The apostles beaten and threatened by the religious leaders for speaking in Jesus' name. They were, they were threatened not to do it again. They were thrown into prison. Stephen is stoned to death for preaching the gospel. We have Paul encountering angry mobs all throughout his ministry, being chased essentially from town to town, being stoned, being dragged through the city, being dragged outside and left for dead. The apostles themselves become martyrs. They're suffering for righteousness' sake. There are always those who will oppose people who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ as part of who we are. And it doesn't just happen in the Bible. Like This is critical. Let me tell you a story. I think that God uh, orchestrates sometimes that you meet people uh, at the right time, the right place. And so the other day I was down in Baltimore with Denise. She had a doctor's appointment and we were in the city and I had to pull into the parking garage. I couldn't go in with her, but I, I don't want her to drive there alone. So I drove her down, dropped her off, and then I went and parked in the parking garage and just sat there. Me and Alex and Owen just sat in the car for 45 minutes or so. And then as we're just getting ready to leave, she calls me and says, I'm coming out. So I have to get down there and get her real quick. And as I'm getting ready to pull out, you know, I get a knock at the window, like the most inconvenient thing. You're like, ah, oh. look over and there's this big guy standing there. And at first I was like a little intimidated, but then I noticed that he had a little guy with him, like little, you know, it was disarming. So I rolled down my window. He said, sir, can you help me? I said, uh, what do you need? He said, my, my car won't start. I, I left my lights on. I went in for my son's appointment. It won't start. Can you help me jump? I said, sure, I'll help you. So I backed up. I figured Denise will find me eventually. She did. So I backed up to his car. I got out, and we started talking as we're hooking the jumper cables up, and I noticed an accent, you know? So I always noticed a very recognizable West Africa accent. And so I said, where are you from? He said, I'm from Nigeria. I said, I recognize your accent. I could tell you were from West Africa somewhere. And before I could say another word, this is interesting to me that he went here, because I didn't tell him who I was and tell him what I did for a living and tell him anything. Before I could say another word, he said, I fled my home five years ago because I'm a Christian. And I said, wow. I said, well, what, what happened? He said, in my village where I live, if you're a Christian, you are, are facing persecution every day. He said, Boko Haram is there. How many of you have seen them on the news? And he said, and there's an affiliate of ISIS in West Africa. And he said, ISIS is there. And he said, they come door to door and they ask if you're a Christian. And if you're a Christian, if you're lucky, they'll beat you and they'll abuse your women and your children and they'll let you go. But some days they just come with rifles and they open the door. And if you say, yes, you're a Christian, they just begin to shoot into the house. They'll kill everybody. So he said, so I fled. I took my wife and, and we fled. We came here five years ago. And I could, just couldn't shake that. I thought, wow, you know, I knew, I knew there were things happening in, in Nigeria. Uh, I didn't know it was so bad. I came home and I looked, looked up some things. 2020 was the deadliest year for Christians in Nigeria. 2020, about 10 Christians a day are martyred in Nigeria. Can you believe that? About 3,500 Christians a year 
in Nigeria. And that was 2020. This year has been worse. 2021, by the time we got to July, they had already surpassed the number for 2020. Nearly 3,500 Christians died in Nigeria, martyred for their faith. By the time we reached July, 17 Christians a day are martyred for their faith in Nigeria. I listened to a woman, uh, an older woman, tell her story this week of her husband. They were taken out of their home, uh, her husband and her, taken out on the street. And she said that her husband was asked, are you a Christian? He said, I am. He said, you can deny your faith in Christ now and save yourself. He said, I cannot deny Jesus. So they cut off his hand. He said, now you can deny Jesus and save yourself. He said, I cannot deny Jesus. So they cut off his entire arm. And as he lay on the street, on his belly, they asked him one more time. And again, he refused. And this time they shot him several times in the head and killed him. Suffering for righteousness. It happens today. And that's an extreme example, right? It's an extreme example, but it doesn't have to be that extreme. It's not always that extreme. In fact, remember the people that Peter's writing to and the persecution that they're experiencing wasn't that extreme at all, but it's persecution nonetheless. They're they're, they're sort of uh, suffering uh, with this subtle sort of soft persecution where they're experiencing material and emotional suffering. It's affecting their relationships with other people. It's affecting their business, their social standing. They're being mocked. Uh, they're, they're called backwards. They're seen as a nuisance in their community. Doesn't that sound relatable to us? Yeah, I know it's after 12, y'all. I got to hang with me for a few minutes. Does that sound relatable? Because I think that we need to perk up a little bit folks, and realize that the scent of persecution is in the air for us. I really believe that. And if you had asked me, I think Nick would probably tell you, maybe you remember, but if you'd asked me 15 years ago if that was true, I'd have said, come on, we don't suffer. We don't suffer here like other people, like people in Nigeria. We don't suffer. We're not suffering persecution. Let's not even call it persecution. But I have a different opinion now, and I believe that the scent is in the air, and I do believe that there's persecution coming. I believe in a sense it's already arrived. Because I think that we can identify the same way with, with these people that Peter writes to. Become an outspoken follower of Jesus, and you will become a social outcast. Right? Like the, the most... Uh, the, the most revolutionary thing you can be now is a follower of Jesus. I always think like you watch the protest on TV for different things and you watch an entire generation of young people caught up in different uh, issues and different revolutions. And I always think there's nothing revolutionary about that. You're all following the same thought, doing the same thing. There's nothing hard about it. Follow Jesus, you'll become an outcast. You'll become a real revolutionary. Follow Jesus, you'll be mocked. Follow Jesus, you'll be called backwards. Follow Jesus, you'll become a nuisance to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to some of your family members. It's in the air. This is how persecution begins. It's soft and it's subtle, but it never stays there. 
And we need to perk our ears up when we hear Peter talking about these things. Suffering for righteousness sake. It's that last kind of suffering. Suffering for your faith in Jesus that Peter's going to deal with in the remainder of the letter. And he's going to equip us to handle it, which is where we're going to get to next week. So I know it's hard to stand firm in a hostile setting. I get that. I know no one looks forward to persecution. But we stand firm because we have a promise from God. And you, I don't even know if you know that you read it. I want to point it out to you. Look at verse 14 again. This is the key, the promise. We'll return to this next week. Even, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, here's the promise, you will be blessed. It's just four words, four wonderful words. You will be blessed. Who will bless you? Who's, what's, what's the implication here? I want you to see it like this. You will be blessed by who? God. It's better to suffer in this life and have your hands and your arms cut off and to be shot dead in the street for confessing Christ. That's better to do that and be blessed by God than it is to take the big easy path in this life and deny Jesus. And be cursed by God. Go back to verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God's on our side. We're His people. That's Peter's whole driving point. And listen again to what Jesus said about suffering in Matthew 10, 28-31. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy the soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Are not one of them, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even, listen, brothers and sisters, we're just going to leave it here. Even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of much more value than the sparrows. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. People may want to harm you. Our culture may turn against us. Our government may reject us. Our families may even be torn apart. But Peter's message to us is stand firm. You will be blessed. You will be blessed. Bow your heads with me. We're going to pick right up there next week. Our life as Christians is bound up in hope. Hope that the the earnest expectation of what's coming. And so Peter takes a step towards that this week and just reminds us that no matter what this life brings us, 
If we stand firm, we will be blessed by God Himself, echoing what Paul said. We cannot be separated from the love of Christ in this life by any type of suffering. If God be for us, who can be against us? Stand firm in your hope today.